It is good to be with you guys. What a wonderful shift in weather, yeah. right? Yeah. Last week it was like, what, 100 last weekend? Now it's, last night it was cold at the wedding I was at. I, and I was in a shirt like this and I, I just forgot that, you know, it goes that quick and you got to start bringing sweatshirts with you. And, but I, I prefer this time of year probably over any other time, yeah. especially in the Central Valley. Fall is really nice here. But it is good to be with you on this Lord's Day morning. Obviously, we're continuing in our 1 Corinthians series called Correcting Carnality in Christ's Church. In the previous section, that was chapter 3, verses 10 to 17, Paul admonished the Corinthians for being bad builders uh, who were in danger of losing their rewards from Christ. He gave them a blueprint so they could become skillful craftsmen and return to the divine job site. Uh, and the things that he told them were to build on Christ, the only foundation, to use the proper building materials as you build, which would be building with gold, silver, and precious stones, right motive, right attitude, right foundation, and that all of us need to be sober-minded knowing that one day at the return of Christ, all of our work will be inspected. And, and Paul called it the day, which refers to the day of the Lord or judgment day. And we know that that's when Christ comes back. Now, in the next section, Paul continues to lay siege to carnal unity or disunity. This time he provides yet another blueprint that can help to end divisions. This time he seeks to reshape how we view, and I'd say firstly the Corinthians and then every believer after them, how we view ourselves, how we view others, how we view what we have, and how we view to whom we belong or who owns us. So these are some very important realities and, and biblical truths that Paul, it, it, man, this is how you end division. If you remember these things, maintain biblical views of these things. And I think these are the things that are easiest for us to forget on a daily basis. And so these are the things that he covers. And uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 3 once again. We're going to wrap up the rest of the chapter, verse 18 to 23. This will be a four-point message or sermon, and obviously it's called the blueprint for ending divisions. I'd like to pray before we actually get to work. Gracious Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves now. We place ourselves and we should live this way, but right now, even in this very moment, we submit ourselves to your word. Your word is, is it comes from you. It is, it is our authority because it comes from you. And so we submit ourselves to your word. We pray that, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts to the word, that you would instruct us from it, that we would not only be instructed, that we would be transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit and that we would desire and pursue obedience. Teach us today these things that, that we need to maintain these views of. I mean, this is essential. And I think that it's essential just in, in normal everyday life for us Christians, not just in keeping unity in churches. Uh, these principles or these biblical truths that we're going to look at, they will help us keep peace and unity in our homes and everywhere else. But we know the context is in the church. And so just teach us from your word today. And, and may the teaching not fall on deaf ears, blind eyes, stony hearts. Lord, we pray that we would be softened this morning by the spirit, receptive to your word, that we would apply it and live it out. Because that's how we bring you glory. 
That's how we experience your blessings. That's how we have unity in our homes, churches, workplace, wherever it might be. And so teach us today. We love you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's pick up where we left off last Sunday with our first point here. Paul calls for the Corinthians and all believers to, number one, maintain a biblical view of our person or of ourselves. And we see this in verses 18 to 20. This is the next thing he says. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, uh, God catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Stop there. So firstly, we know that the church has been dealing with divisions and carnal unity. They've been dividing over their favorite preachers and a number of other fleshly issues. And so we, we know the context. There's disunity, infighting, all sorts of dissensions and arguments. There's just all sorts of stuff happening in this church. And so that's our immediate context. And Paul is now saying, here is the way to get back to unity where you should be. And the first point has to do with maintaining a view of ourselves. And it is just essential. And I would say a tremendous source for division in the church is competing wisdom. That's one of the things that will bring about disunity in your church is when Christians have their ideas, maybe their little theologies. Um, most of all, they have their opinions. They have what they perceive as or to be wisdom. And then they, so they have these views and opinions and then they compare them with that of other brothers and sisters in the congregation. And they begin to bash or beat up others who don't hold the same views or have the same opinions. And, and, and therefore, they create what? Carnal unity or disunity. This is a big, big problem in churches. It's when believers take what they know, fashion their own strong opinions, and then compete with others. And they would never admit to this, but they compete with others to establish their own dominance. Now, they would never say, I do this to establish my dominance. I do this because I know I'm right. To me, those <laughs> dominance and you just desiring to be right are synonymous. Now, you could be right in a scriptural, a theology or a view, and somebody might be wrong, but there's still a way about, you know, that you go about that. But for the most part, a lot of division occurs in small expressions of the church and larger because of competing wisdom, because of competing ideas and opinions. And the believer who behaves this way, proves Paul's point here. They prove to be wise in this age. That is wise in contemporary human wisdom because that is the kind of wisdom that bolsters pride, incites competitiveness, generates arguments, and leads to divisions. It is the way of this world to cause havoc and, and to wreak havoc in any context. And so when a believer gets these opinions, their own little wisdom, and they start to compare and compete and divide with others. You're not operating in true wisdom. You're operating in the wisdom of this age because true wisdom is not divisive. Never. It never exalts one Christian above another. The minute that you feel that way, you've now departed from true wisdom and slid over into the wisdom of this age or what Paul calls worldly wisdom. 
And I think that the initial cause of this kind of behavior, it, it when we start to compete and have our own little competing ideas and we start to divide, I think the initial cause or underlying cause of that is that we have now departed from a biblical view of self. We've now walked away from the scriptural perspective, theology, and view or anthropology of people. We've forgotten that. It's when we fail to see ourselves in light of scripture, what we actually are. Like as if we just don't know our own person. Well, we need to understand something that, that we in our natural state, and I would say even in a regenerated state, we are not wise on our own. We are not enlightened on our own. That, that is a work of the Spirit of God in us. To be enlightened and to be able to comprehend biblical wisdom, to be able to apprehend uh, biblical wisdom, to be able to act upon biblical wisdom, that is a work of the Spirit in us. It, it, it's not something that, that is inherent in sinful man. I would say it is to a degree inherent in the regenerated man, but the regenerated man can go off the rails as well. So we need to understand firstly, and this is something that Paul has been hammering since chapter 1, Wisdom comes from the Spirit of God, right? 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10, and then verse 14. It is imparted. If we possess actual true wisdom, it is because the Spirit has graciously given it to us. With that being said, how could we ever take credit for such a divine gift and then lord it over others? How could we ever compete with something that was given to us through pure, unadulterated, perfect grace? How can I compete with a gift? What do we do? Go around saying, my gift's better than your gift? At that point, it makes the gift null and void. So in true wisdom, you understand who you are. I didn't have anything prior to Christ. I may have had possessions and a wife and children and a, a, a three-legged dog. I might have had gophers in my yard. But you didn't have salvation. You didn't have God's grace. You had it in a general way. You didn't have any wisdom at all. You had nothing, nothing that really counts, nothing of any eternal consequence. So this is something we need to understand. This is what we have come forth from. Zero, goose egg, nothing. And so my point, or really Paul's point, is how could we even attempt to compete with others when others have received the gift of wisdom from God, and so have we. We're now competing with what, God, with what God gave us, and we're now competing with what God gave someone else? How insulting that must be to God, who is the Father of lights, who is the giver of all good things. And, and that is really what Paul is after here. He knows the Corinthians, you've forgotten who you are. You, you, you know, knowledge, it says in Scripture, can puff up. And that's what's happened. They have a little bit. Remember, they have an elementary level. They're like little, like little spiritual toddlers, even though they're about five years old in the faith. But just a little bit of knowledge that they've got, now they're competing with that. And this is what happens when you don't recognize what you are or what you were or recognize how you obtained these gracious, awesome gifts from God. This is a fleshly, carnal response to the grace-given gifts of God, to compete and to compare 
That is a fleshly, carnal response. Now, I think we would all agree that it is true that, that some believers certainly appear wiser than others, right? Amen? I, I think we, would, we know that, especially when you're talking to a younger Christian. You're like, okay, woo, you like Joel Osteen. That's not very wise. So, right, I, I'm just saying, I'm not trying to make fun of them. I'm just saying when you start out, you've got a little measure of true wisdom, and, and hopefully it's cultivated through the study of the Word and the Spirit is working in you. But I think we would all agree. I mean, we can see this in finances, Right? Some believers are better stewards and exercise greater financial wisdom than others. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's, it's a fact that some believers are wiser than others. There's, there's no doubt about that. And yet, they need to realize that they are not the source of their own wisdom. If somebody has a, a, a little bit more true wisdom, if one believer has a little bit more than another, that, that's not because of you. That's not because you are somehow better with the wisdom. It's, it's, it's what God is gifting to you and giving you. And so you just cannot see yourself as being superior or better or wiser or you have a better theology. And quite frankly, there's some believers that just don't have a very good theology at all, especially when it comes to soteriology. But if, if Joe has a better grasp of what Scripture teaches about that, and Fred is on his journey and way there, but not quite there. It's not this guy's job to hammer this dude. If anything at all, it's his job to lovingly share the truth with the other guy there. And maybe the other guy doesn't want to hear it, so then you back off. Because this happens all the time. So it is true that, that some are wiser than others, but they cannot see themselves as superior. They should not compare their wisdom with others. It's a gift here. It's a gift there. They should not compete with one another over these things. Again, how do you compete with a gift? God gives gifts for our good and for the good of the church. The Spirit has illuminated, illuminated my mind and revealed true wisdom to me. It is my duty to steward it. How do I steward it? By memorizing it, by living it, and by gently and lovingly sharing it with other brothers and sisters when opportunities arise. That's what I'm supposed to do with the wisdom that God has kindly and graciously given to me. Now, the Corinthians were acting wise in this age because they were exhibiting the characteristics of age wisdom or worldly wisdom, carnality and fleshliness and competitiveness and disagreements and divisions. Making it worse, they actually believed they were operating in true wisdom. This is one of the most frustrating things in the church as a pastor or as a basic congregate where you, you know your brother or sister that you love so much is operating in worldly wisdom, yet they're under some kind of deception thinking that they're truly wise. And therefore, when you begin to try to share the truth in love with them, they just reject and reject and reject and even use worldly terminology like you're judging me. It's a very uh, strange phenomenon to be under the delusion of, well, I think I'm truly wise, and yet, you know, all of the, the characteristics that you're displaying are age wisdom or worldly wisdom. It's, it's there. They think they have it. And I think that's where the Corinthians were. Now, Paul has already stated that the world sees the things of God as folly, 
especially the cross of Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.18. And now in verses 18 and 19a, he is stating the reverse. God sees the things of this world, its wisdom and ways as folly, which is the proper perspective, the worldly perspective, which looks at the things of God and calls them folly or the reverse. Obviously, God is right in this argument. What he sees when he looks out upon the world is a bunch of fools thinking they are wise, operating in their own fleshly, carnal wisdom. And that's what Paul is saying here. When we operate in worldly wisdom, the world gives us a hearty thumbs up, right? Two thumbs up and a snap. That's what it gives us. Hey, you're, you're affirming 75,000 genders. Two thumbs up. You're affirming homosexual marriage. That's worldly wisdom. Two thumbs up, right? You're affirming fornication, sex outside of marriage. Two thumbs up. This is what the world does. It gives a hearty approval anytime a person is walking in the aged wisdom, in the wisdom of the age. The world does that. It loves us when we operate like it. It loves us. It calls us wise. It sees us as wise. It even gives us certificates and degrees as we walk across the stage. I have a degree in gender studies. There's 80 genders. Here is a diploma. That's college today. So it, it, it gives a hearty thumbs up. It gives us certificates and degrees that we proudly, you know, put on our walls. Look, I have a Bachelor of Science in Gender Study. I don't know how you're going to make an income, and don't ask me to pay for your school. I'm not doing it if that's what your degree is in. Of course, they'll tax me, and I'll have no choice, but this is what the world does. But God sees us as fools or those who think this way and operate this way as fools because that is how he views the world. Now, obviously, he has a plan of salvation for his people and, and such, but in a general way, in his eyes, the world is nothing but lots of foolishly lost people operating in their own wisdom. So God doesn't give a hearty thumbs up to gender studies degrees because that's earthly, fleshly wisdom. He doesn't give a hearty thumbs up to us when we think we're operating in true wisdom and yet we are operating in the wisdom of this world. That's not something that he supports. He sees us in those moments and the world in general as foolish. In his eyes, the world is filled with fallen fools who think they are wise. And I think that Solomon summarized this for us perfectly in Proverbs 14, 12, where he said, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. We know that Solomon wrote about and talked about in Proverbs about the, the, you know, the beauty of true wisdom. That's all he focused on there in Ecclesiastes. And that's what he's talking about here. There is a way that seems right. There is a way that seems wise to natural people, unregenerate natural people, regular folks. But in the end, it leads to death. It is foolish. It destroys. And when we operate in true wisdom, however, God is, is very well pleased with us. In fact, he even lends us his support. He will help to, to make those endeavors successful because we're operating in true wisdom and they bring him glory and they're for our good and the good of the church. And yet, when this happens, what does the world do? The thumbs up goes thumbs down. 
When we begin to operate in true wisdom, it puts its thumbs down. It says, you're the fools. You're the stupid ones. You're the one operating in false spiritual true wisdom. You're not wise because if you were wise, you'd be doing what all we're doing. You'd be doing everything we're doing. You'd be believing like us. So if you're in the world in its wisdom, God gives you a thumbs down, but the world gives you a thumbs up, and then the reverse is true. That's what he's talking about here. That's what he talks about here. In the world's eyes, the church is filled with Kool-Aid sipping, misguided fools who think they have spiritual wisdom. That's what the world thinks. As cars drive by, and it's probably, I would think, thousands and thousands of car each, cars each day, when they look over and see a church building, they say, well, what a bunch of fools. There's nothing but fools in that room. Right now, as cars are driving by, they probably take a notice of us, and they, they're probably more interested in the smoke shop. That's not foolish. That makes me feel good. But the thing next to it, foolish. It's the way the world views us. It's the way it sees us. And Paul sees the Corinthians as thinking they are truly wise, and yet they are operating in age wisdom. What he's essentially saying, your little paraphrase would be, if you think you are operating in true wisdom while quarreling with one another and creating division in the church, you are deceived. Notice how he uses that word. You are deceived. He, says, he is saying, essentially, this is the wisdom of the age. And he's saying it would be better for you to be seen as a fool in the eyes of the world for operating in God's wisdom than for you to be seen as a fool in God's eyes for operating in worldly wisdom. So which, which would you rather be as a Christian? Foolish in God's eyes or foolish in the eyes of the world? Um, if you answer you'd rather be seen foolish in God's eyes, you're probably not a Christian. Nobody wants to be seen as a fool. No believer, no regenerated person wants to be seen as a fool by their heavenly father. They want to be seen as a son or daughter that's compliant or compl uh, not complacent. That's what he sees most often, but compliant and obedient in walking in this gift of wisdom that he has given us. That's Paul's admonition here. You need to recognize what you're doing and who you are. In verses 19b to 20, Paul describes how the worldly wise are absolutely no match for the sovereign, all-powerful God. Uh, this is not merely just a statement of fact here. It's actually a rebuke. The Corinthians were claiming to be truly wise while exhibiting carnal, divisive or divisive wisdom, and God is now catching them in their craftiness. That's what Paul's telling them. He's not just giving some vague, nebulous truth that's out there, some reality for others. You people are under the impression that you're truly wise while hammering each other over your favorite preachers. I am, God is saying through Paul, I am catching you in your little scheme, even though you might not think you're scheming. This is the rebuke here. It's amazing. God was exposing their hypocrisy because that's all it is when you are operating in worldly wisdom and, and you think you're in true wisdom and you claim true wisdom. You're just operating in hypocrisy. And now God is exposing through Paul their hypocrisy, our hypocrisy, if we find ourselves doing this. And I would just simply ask the question, how is this even possible? Well, it's very simple. Look at what Paul wrote at the end of the section there. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. In other words, no one, including believers, especially believers, escapes the omniscient eye of God, the all-knowing eye. 
God knows exactly what our attitude, our motive, the foundation we're building on, which pool, if, there was, if, if wisdom was a pool, he knows which pool we're drawing from or swimming in. He knows it all. And he catches unbelievers in their little, they think they're wise, their little schemes and craftiness, and he catches believers in their little schemes and craftiness. That's what Paul is saying here. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. Hebrews 4.13, he knows what you're doing. He knows all of our thoughts, all of our motives, all of our attitudes, all the time, 365, seven uh, days a, a week, 12 months a year. He knows it all. Nothing escapes this omniscient, all-knowing God. So we can't possibly fool him. And Paul is telling the Corinthians, you've forgotten who you are. You need to remember who you are. You didn't have wisdom to begin with. You barely have any right now, and you certainly aren't exercising it. And if you think that somehow you're getting away with this, God is catching you in your craftiness. Why? Because he knows the thoughts of the self-wise, those who are pretending and playing this game. So the first step in the blueprint for ending divisions is to maintain a biblical view of our person. We are not wise apart from God. The wisdom we have is God's gift to us. Therefore, we must never compete with it or lord it over others. Does that make sense? That is what Paul is teaching the Corinthians. Let's move to the second point. Number two, we must maintain a biblical view of other people. And this is expressed in verse 21a, and he just puts it so simply. So let no one boast in men. Obviously, if Christians are going around boasting about men, they are failing to understand a proper anthropology about people in general. They've got a wrong view of people. They don't, they're not exercising, resting in, standing on a biblical view of others. The Corinthians, we know this to be true in the context, the Corinthians had developed a carnal, worldly view of their godly leaders, and they were now boasting in men, right? We already saw this. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Or the best club of all, we follow Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.12. And remember, it's, it's, a, it's a wrong view of Christ in that text. It's not that they were literally following Christ. They kind of made up their own version of him. The fact of the matter is what Paul is saying here is the believer who be behaves this way also proves to be wise in this age because that is the kind of man-centered earthly wisdom that puts men on pedestals and makes them American idols or rock stars in the church or outside of the church. And this is what happens when we fail to maintain a biblical view of other people. We are not seeing them properly in light of Scripture. Men are, as Matt would say in the back, they are imagers, and we typically call them image bearers, but men and women, people in general, are imagers created in the Imago Dei or image of God, right? Genesis 1.26. That means that all people have some inherent dignity and value, but that does not make them boastworthy. Being an imager doesn't give you the rights to, to some kind of arrogant view toward you and some kind of boasting. Only God is good, and only Christ is worthy of any and all such boasting. Mark 10, 18, 1 Corinthians 1, 31. In fact, 
Human boasting, like when we're talking about just boasting about, you know, a sports player or some pastor in the church or something like that, just human boasting, it's abhorrent to God, James 4.16. He doesn't like it when, when we boast about our favorite preachers or, or our, our favorite Christians or something like that. Now, I, I, I've been reading in, in 2 Corinthians lately, and Paul does boast quite a bit about that church, but he's giving literally in the boasting all the credit to God for it. That's a proper boast and then ascribing the credit. You give it to God. God made the Corinthians. By the way, they repented and became a very, very useful church in the Lord's hands. Read 2 Corinthians. Maybe we'll go into it after this because I feel like we're going to need to because I'm just beating them up for a year. Point is that Paul boasts about them to other apostles and to other leaders and stuff. But he's not just saying, you know, Fred over there, he's one heck of a piano player. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about their generosity and how they're raising up a gift to give the impoverished Christians in Jerusalem. So, But he's boasting in the Lord. And that's okay. But this boasting about Apollos and we follow this guy and that guy, it's just ridiculous. It's abhorrent to God. He doesn't like it when we do these things. It's not a, a, a right view. It's not a right way. And the fact of the matter is what we're doing is we're giving credit to the creature rather than to the creator. And the creator should get all the credit and get all the boasting and get all the glory. We should not give it to men. And why do we end up giving it to men? Because we've forgotten what men are. And we've literally, worse than that, we've forgotten who God is. Amen? We have forgotten who God is. You need to understand, and I need to understand, that people are what they are because of God. People have what they have because of God. Every good and perfect gift, I cited this earlier, it comes from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, James 1.17. Therefore, all boasting and, and gratitude, any of this kind of stuff, it should be aimed at God, especially among Christians who were dead in their transgressions and sins, the sins and transgressions they once walked, but they had been made alive with Christ. They didn't make themselves alive. They were made alive by God in Christ. They were saved by grace. They have been raised up and seated with him in heavenly places, Ephesians 2, 1 and 5 and 6. Well, Lord, help me here understand why we would boast about anybody. This is who we were. We were dead in the sins and transgressions that we loved and walked in, and yet God saw fit out of his great mercy and love from a plan from eternity past to raise us up out of that, so much so that even right now in a spiritual sense, we are seated with Christ. We didn't do this for ourselves. We were blind and dead. And somehow we're going to boast about people? Other Christians we're going to boast about? It, it just doesn't make any sense. It, it makes no sense for us to ascribe to the creature what belongs to the creator. It makes no sense. This is Paul's point here. So the second step in the blueprint for ending divisions is to maintain a biblical view of other people, a proper biblical anthropology of ourselves and of others. That is key. What are other people? They are fellow imagers, but not boast-worthy. Even the most talented preachers like Apollos or Paul Washer are not worthy of such boasting. God made these men what they are. They carry 
His spirit in them. They are empowered by the spirit of God. Without the spirit of God in them, they are unregenerate, dead sinners. They are what they are because of God. Therefore, who should get the boasting? Look at what you've done in the life of Paul Washer. Glory to you, God. This is the perspective. This is the right Christian attitude. When you act like that, you are behaving and operating and walking in what? What is essentially the big point in the first four chapters? True wisdom. True wisdom gives God all the boasting, glory, and praise. But when we direct those things toward men, we are operating in age wisdom or worldly wisdom. God alone is worthy of any and all such boasting. And the only way to remember that is to remember what you are and remember what other people are. And to remember what God has done in pure grace and give him the glory. Third point, number three, we must maintain a biblical view of our possessions. Uh, we see this in verses 21b to 22. Listen to what Paul says. This is by far my favorite section, probably in the whole chapter, but easily in the last part of it here. This is incredible. This is mind-blowing. You think that as a Christian, you are a possessor of a few things like a decent little car, Honda Pilot, Ford Explorer. Not much of a blessing there. They should name it an exploder. Amen? But it is a blessing because it got me here. But we tend to think that, well, you know what? We, we own these things, and I've got this beautiful home, and, you know, and I, I've got a family. Not that I own it, but in a way I do. And, and I, I, I own my lawn, and I own an electric mower because I'm green. Sorry, I'm just putting that in there. It's not because I'm green. It's because it saves gas. Right? But we tend to think that I own these glasses. I own these shirts. I own these shoes. We think of our tangible, temporal blessings and things that we have as our possessions. But listen to what Paul now says. This is... This is where it's at. Now, this, prepare to have your mind blown. Listen to what he says. For all things are yours. Mm. For all things are yours. That means that if I want to lay claim to some really cool shoes in here, you have to give them to me. I'm just kidding. It doesn't mean that. Listen to what else he says. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. Wow. Okay, so like I said, this is my favorite point. The Corinthians were competing with each other over their favorite preacher teachers, which obviously led to quarreling and divisions. Paul is now saying, do you not understand that all things are yours, that I myself, that Apollos, that Cephas, that we all belong to all of you? None of you in this church can just lay claim to Paul because I, Paul, belong to all of you. I belong to the whole, I am property of Christ's church. And the same goes for Apollos and Cephas and Phil Baker and Steve Woolley. And literally, this is what he's saying. How could you build a little clique and call it Paul's team when I belong to the other teams? This is what he's saying. 
The fact of the matter is, as believers, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17. And what that means is that whatever belongs to Christ now belongs to us. What belongs to him? All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, Colossians 1, 16. By virtue of his divine lordship, all things belong to Christ. By virtue of our divine adoption, all things are now ours as well. What Christ owns, all Christians own. What Christ has, all Christians have. And this isn't even the best part. Christ not only shares all things with his unique, special, adopted people, he also shares his glory with them. This is what it means to be one with Christ as he is one with the Father, John 17, 22. It means to be one with him to the point that all that is his is ours, including his glory, including his Father. The begotten son possesses all. The adopted sons and daughters likewise possess all. What a truth. What a truth. Man. So, point being, it makes zero sense to click up under preferred preachers and teachers. All preachers and teachers belong to the whole church. They have been given as a gift to the church, not only to local bodies, but to the entire church, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Now, it is true that I minister here to this body, which we call ourselves RHC. That, that is the truth. But I belong to the whole church. Churches in Ukraine could lay claim to me because I belong to those brothers and sisters just as I belong to you, although I don't think that'd be very wise for them because they've got their hands full. That was supposed to be funny. Bringing me into their church would probably create more trouble than good. We're dealing with the Russians. We don't need a fill. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that I belong to that body just as I belong to this body. And you belong to that body just as you belong to this body. This is what it means to own all. Uh, what, a, what a dynamic, beautiful, gorgeous, amazing, breathtaking truth. I am theirs and they are mine. I'm not the owner, I'm just part of it. As believers, we possess every preacher, teacher. I would say the biblical ones, that is. There's a great many that none of us want to possess. Not the charlatans, right? They don't belong to the church at all. Now, notice the extra details that the apostle included here to really blow out this, this truth, to illustrate the, the fuller scope of our amazing possessions in Christ. Paul says the world is ours. Wasn't there a James Bond movie that came out a few years ago? The world is his or something like that. It really wasn't. 
The world is ours. And when I hear that, I stop and think, I really don't want this world. It's kind of a mess. <laughs> it is, in fact, the world in which the kingdom of God operates and exists in the hearts and minds of God's people. So in that regard, I think it has much value. But when you think of the world, it's like, don't really want it, right? Well, you know what? The Greek word for world has many different ways to, to interpret it. It's cosmos, and in this particular text, it refers to something quite glorious, and that is the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth. The current heavens and earth have long been subjected to God's curse because of our sin. All creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth as it awaits the fulfillment of God's plan and the children of God to be revealed, Romans 8, 19 and verse 22. Heaven and earth will pass and they will be replaced by the new heavens and new earth, Mark 13, 31, Revelation 21, 1. At that time, the Lord Jesus seated on his throne will say, I am making all things new, Revelation 21, 5. The new heavens and earth will be God's dwelling place among his people where believers will worship him and see his face, Revelation 21, 3, Revelation 22, 3, and 4. It is where righteousness dwells, 2 Peter 3, 13 where the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, Isaiah 65, 17. There will be no more sea, no more tears, death, mourning, crying, pain, um, no more curse, no more night, Revelation 21, 1 and 4, and chapter 22, 3 and 5. That is the world that is ours, a new world world, a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem that belongs to Christ, to the Father, and to us, to the Spirit, and to us. Although I would say that the current world, in a sense, belongs to us. It is the meek, the meek Christian that inherits the earth. And we have done that in a sense, but I like to narrow it down to the people of God operating in their own kingdom, in the kingdom of Christ in the world. That is what we are partakers in now. But the one to come is ours. How glorious that will be. And that's not all that Paul says. Paul says, life is ours. Life. From the context, it is clear that the apostle is primarily referring to spiritual life or eternal life, although I think Christ does promise to his people an abundant life. But I think the abundance in life is found in the spiritual part of it, not in the physical, because all sorts of crazy stuff happens in the physical. In Christ, we have a quality of life that will never tarnish. It will never diminish. It will never be lost. In fact, God's own life is now in us through Christ. God abides in us, John 14, 23. And we now share in his nature and in his life, 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. So the world is ours, especially the world to come. Life is ours, life in abundance. And I think that is always a reference to spiritual life because physical life doesn't seem all that abundant when you get a brain tumor or cancer or anything else. Although I would say the joy 
The joy and the sense of security in those times is abundant. The peace that transcends is abundant. But life is ours, and I think the best way to look at that is eternal life. What is this life? James says it's a vapor. It goes by like that. We will live forever and ever and ever in the glorious presence of Christ and the Father and the Spirit in a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem that makes this place look exactly as it is. Life is ours. Paul says death is ours. Whoa, is that something we want? Well, death is the great enemy of mankind, but Christ has conquered death. And through him we have likewise conquered death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57. Now, unless Christ returns, we will have to pass through death, but we will pass through it as its master, not its slave. All death can do to the believer is deliver him to Jesus. It brings us into the glorious presence of our Savior, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. This is why Paul declared to live is Christ. That's how I'll live my life for him. But let me tell you something. To die is gain. Philippians 1.21. MacArthur said something apt and good here. For God's people, this present life is good, but death which ushers us into eternal life is way better. Amen? So we have the world. We have... We have life. We even have death, but we have mastery over death. Nothing in this world scares the unbeliever more than death. And we should not at all be afraid of death because that is nothing but an Uber ride to Christ. Praise the Lord. And by the way, he picks up the tab on that. Paul says the present is ours. The present is ours. That encompasses everything we have, uh, we have or experience in this life. It includes the good and the bad, the pleasant and the painful, the joys and the disappointments, the health and the sickness, the contentment and the griefs. In God's hands, it all serves us and makes us spiritually richer. God causes all things to work together for our good. Romans 8, 28, one of my favorite texts. So the present is ours, and God is fashioning and using all present experiences, whether they be good, bad, or ugly, for our own sanctification and good to make us like the good Savior, Christ. And then Paul says, the future is ours. This obviously refers to our heavenly blessings. In fact, I don't think it really refers to the future new heavens and new earth and Jerusalem, those things. I think it just talks about, it's talking about the heavenly blessings uh, that we have now, in a sense, we do have them now. Ephesians 1, I think it's 3 through the end of the chapter or so, talks about these spiritual blessings or heavenly blessings. But it, it, he's referring to the blessings we shall encounter and experience when we transition, right? Because he just got done talking about death. These are things that we now only have a glimpse of, right? Yet they will be the greatest blessings of all. You don't know, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. Uh, Paul is, is talking about a prophetic truth that was realized in Christ, but I think it, it's two-stage. He's also talking about what awaits the believer as they pass from this life into eternal life, into the presence of Christ. First of all, I think the richest 
reward of all, and it's really not a reward, it's a gift, but the richest thing that we obtain in that moment is the physical presence of Christ. To know Christ now finally by sight and not by faith. How hard is it to know and to follow Christ by faith? It's very, very challenging at times. And I would say any success we encounter or experience is through the Spirit, not even our own power. But one day, as I close my eyes and fall asleep, because that's what the Scripture calls death for the Christian. It's not soul sleep like with the cults that call it that. It's, it's, it's such a gentle experience to fall asleep in the Lord and to open your eyes fully awake and realized in His physical presence. Christ isn't a floating spirit. He has a physical body. He bears the physical wounds of that destruction device. And you, like Thomas, will see those wounds, but you won't say, prove it to me. You will know, but you will look into his eyes and you will say, you don't look anything like a Swiss downhill skier. Because that's what every image since the medieval times has looked like. Blue eyes. You will see him and you will behold his glory. And you will fall to your knees. You will fall on your faces in prostration, praising the lamb who was slain for you. You will see him with your eyes. That is our future. If, that, if that's the blessings, then that's enough blessing for me. I am waiting for that future. I long for that future. I do. And then right at the end of, let's see, at the end of 22, Paul just repeats what he said at the beginning of, tw or at the end of 21. He just repeats himself, all are yours. Just like a reminder, it's all yours. Those who are in Christ, everything belongs to you. Again, the point being, if everything is mine, if everything is yours, why are we fighting over what you have? Why are you bickering with me over what I have? What I have is yours and what you have is mine. And in this context, it is the ministers, the faithful ministers. And I think that the, the early church expressed this truth and reality better than it ever has since. If you look in Acts 2, 42 to 47, they were giving and sharing and meeting one another's needs because they didn't see themselves as individual possessors of these possessions. They belong to the body. And so we are sending Paul to your aid or we are sending Phil because he is your brother too, not just ours. We are sending Brenda to you. I am sending Apollos to you. Paul was always sending these little protégés that he was forging and discipling, always sending out Timothy and Apollos. Receive them with all joy because they're not mine. They belong to you utilize them. They love you. That's his point. Why are you fighting? There is no Paul club. The whole church, I belong to the whole church. You really just can't have any kind of divisions or anything here. You can't if you understand these things. So the third step in the blueprint for ending divisions is to maintain a biblical view of our possessions. All believers possess all things. And since we possess all things, why would we compare, compete, quarrel, or divide over anything or anyone? 
Why would we ever do that? That is the most illogical, foolish thing to do. You know what it is? It's age wisdom. It's the wisdom of this world because the wisdom of this world is one big rat race with everyone using others as rungs in the ladder of their success. That's what it is. Now that the apostle has literally shown that everything is ours, and since there is a strong temptation in each of us to try to find our worth in everything but Jesus Paul presents one more highly important step in the blueprint. And now this step here has a twofold purpose. It will help us destroy and get rid of division in the church, but it'll help to guard us against this temptation to put our hope and worth in something other than Christ. Did we not just sing about that? We, we actually picked the songs that fit the text. Now let's move to that fourth and final point. Paul is saying... Really, the Holy Spirit through Paul is saying, number four, maintain a biblical view of our possessor, our possessor. Verse 23, and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Christ is our possessor. We belong to him. He bought us at a price, 1 Corinthians 6, 20, right, with his precious blood. In fact, we have been redeemed by his blood, Ephesians 1, 7. We have even been sealed with and by his spirit that is now in us, Romans 8, 9, and Ephesians 1, 13. We are now, if we are in Christ, we are now at this very moment, his chosen people and treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 7, 6, that was our call to worship last week. I wish I'd saved it for this week. How wonderful. We no longer belong to the world. We no longer belong to the devil. We no longer belong to this flesh or to these fleshly passions, Ephesians 2, 2 and 3. We belong to Christ. We belong to his church, the church that he is in fact building, that nothing shall prevail against, which means that we belong to each other. We belong to Christ. We belong to his church that he is building which means that you belong to me and I belong to you. And I love what Paul adds, that detail. Uh, it's just amazing. And Christ is God's. Look at that at the end of the 23 there. This was his way of saying all believers are tied together in eternal oneness with Christ the Son and God the Father. That we are tied together with Christ and the Father in eternal oneness or unity forever and ever and ever and ever. Aren't you glad that our relationship with the Godhead is unlike our relationship with everyone down here? See, down here, it's easy for us to get mixed up and forget these things that we need to maintain and then to divide. But in God, no matter what occurs, there is no division between us and Him. Sin cannot even divide us. It only puts us under His chastening discipline, and He disciplines those whom He loves. This relationship that we have with the Godhead is all oneness and all perfect unity 
forever and ever and ever. And I would say that is because of God's side. <laughs> because we do every conceivable stupid thing to bring division in every conceivable relationship. But what Paul is saying here is that why would you divide with one another when all of you together are in an eternal union in oneness with God, the Son and God the Father? How could you ever divide with Caroline, Phil, when that is not the kind of relationship, eternal relationship you have with God? How could you ever divide with another soul and another Christian who has that kind of relationship with God? This is the logic that Paul is using here. And it is sound. Why? Because it's coming from true biblical wisdom. Oh, just stop and think about what he's saying here. Since all believers are tied together in eternal oneness with God, they are also tied together in eternal oneness with each other. How could we ever be divided from our brothers and sisters? How? It is physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every conceivable way, impossible for us to be divided with the Godhead. How could we let simple, stupid little things divide us from those who are one with God? I know how. We forget to maintain these things. That's how it happens. I forget who I am. I forget who I am. I forget who other people are. Heaven forbid people are not my adversary. And I think they are, and they're not. Right? I forget what I have. I don't have to be envious. I don't have to be covetous. I don't have to, to look upon what others have. I don't have to look at other churches that are larger than ours and, and worry about that, which is something I wrestle with. I don't, I don't have that church. is mine. It all belongs to us. Every real church belongs to me, and I belong to it. How could we ever compete? Big Valley has 3,000 people, the real believers there. They're just as much mine as they belong to Big Valley, and they belong to me and vice versa, and, and the church down the street, and at Sovereign Grace, we're, we're all one. The true bride is one. We're not a bunch of divorcees or a bunch of split up relationships. And I don't say that with insensitivity. Sometimes it happens. But what I'm saying is this is not a fragmented thing. We all belong to each other forever. Figure out how to get along. Figure it out. One of the biggest driving things for not getting along is when we have unmet needs. And sometimes those unmet needs are things that only Christ can meet. Uh, just, just trying to reason with you here. And I, I'm a culprit. My wife was hammering me this morning and I was like, this is not the time for this. It was the time for that. You know, I, I can get frustrated with people. And, and in those moments when, when I, I, in those moments where I let anger take over or, or, or whatever, it just, I'm, I'm just now operating in worldly wisdom. And the same is true of you, although I don't think it applies as we're driving. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. What are you doing? This is the universal moron signal, right? You do this. No, that's worldly wisdom as well, because I'm attempting to do 47 and a 35. I know I'm being silly there, but 
if we're going to spend all eternity with one another. And I know there there's no sin. It's just perfect righteousness in this new heavens and new earth. I get that. Even the part where we're with Christ for a while before he returns, if we pass away and go be with him, I, I get it. We, we don't have to wrestle with flesh. We don't have to do that. But, but man, I, I need to remember that, that and I, I'll say Cameron, not because he frustrates me. He has. But, <laughs> and I probably frustrated him a lot more than he ever has me. That's for certain. But, but, but I'm going to be with him forever. I need to practice that now. How could I divide with someone that Christ was brutalized and smashed and crushed by the Father for? This man is in an eternal oneness relationship with the God I claim to worship. The moment I divide with him, and it's usually over tertiary stupid things, the moment that I do that, I'm not acting like who I am and what I have. And I'm not treating him the way he deserves to be treated. We, we need to remember these things. You know, maintaining a biblical view of our possessor, it is by far, I think, the most important step in overcoming division in the church. Christ is the source of spiritual unity and the source for healing division. It is in taking our eyes off him that division begins. And then, of course, the reverse is true. When we put our eyes back on him, division begins to end. Maintaining a biblical view of our possessor will also guard us against the terrible temptation to find our worth in what we own. Our value comes from the fact that we are Christ's possession. His ownership of us creates our value, establishes our value. The price he paid on that execution device, it declares our worth. There is no person, place, or thing in all creation that could ever be compared to the blood of Christ. It is the most valuable currency and commodity ever known. As Luther put it, one drop of Christ's blood is worth more than heaven and earth. One drop. Being bought and owned by Christ set our worth. Being in an eternal union, undivided, will never end. Being in an eternal union with Christ sustains our worth. If we memorize these twin truths that, that being bought and owned sets our worth, being in relationship sustains our worth, if we memorize, practice, reflect on, keep going back to these twin truths, any and all such temptations can be defeated. Never, ever focus on what you possess. Focus on who possesses you. The fourth and final step in the blueprint for ending divisions is to maintain a biblical view of our possessor. We belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Our value comes from the Lord, not from what we own or from the people in our lives, parents, grandparents, husbands, wives, children, grandchildren, girlfriends, boyfriends, bosses, preachers, teachers. The list could go on and on and on. 
When we draw our worth from something other than Christ, we set unrealistic expectations on that object or person. And when those expectations aren't met, we become defeated, disgruntled, and even disenfranchised to the point of breaking unity with other believers. And yet if we draw our worth from Christ, our sense of value and security will be immutable, unchanging, just as Christ is immutable and unchanging. And we will have no desire to compare or compete with other believers, thus eliminating the potential for carnal unity and divisions. Let's quickly summarize. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 18 to 23, the blueprint for ending divisions is maintain biblical views of our person, of other people, of our possessions, and of our glorious, wonderful, benevolent, eternally gracious, ultimately merciful, and always, always, always good, all caps, always good, possessor, Christ. May we follow this blueprint from this day forward in the power of the Holy Spirit.